given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is The Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. And we are currently living through a vapid time in our country's musical landscape, one filled with inanimate objects serving as humans, an incessant need for perfection, and a general lack of understanding of what has come before. My job as a journalist is not to critique or provide reasons why this has taken place, although the reasons are many but rather harken back to a period in our country's musical evolution when the cross-fertilization of idioms was flourishing. It flourished because of artists who lived the music, Joe Williams, King Curtis, Woody Herman, and Harold Land, and others who sought to create and take their show on the road in metropolitan cities. They saw it as their responsibility to play the music for the people and serve as role models for a cadre of musicians who were coming into their own, searching for their own individuality and love, ideas, and stick to to the sessions they took part in. These accompanists knew their job was to make the leader sound as good as possible, be it a Hollywood soundtrack, Motown, or a record session. These accompanists wanted to keep the calendar filled and brought their spiritual energy to the session, which in many ways made the album. My guest today... Was one of the most, is one of the most prominent and freewheeling studio musicians in the Western world. It could have been working with Bernard Purdy, Cornell Dupree, and Richard T. It could have been with Paul Humphrey, George Bohannon, and Charles Kennard in soul jazz settings. It could have been with Spider Webb and Hampton Hawes playing funk under jazz, or playing jazz over rock with Steely Dan, and on and on and on and on. My guest's resume reads like something out of a fairy tale. Aretha Franklin, Donald Byrd, The Crusaders, Gary Burton, Bobby Humphrey, Joe Cocker, Gary McFarlane, Tim Buckley, Phil Upchurch, Mose Allison, Quincy Jones, and Etta James. No need to say any more. Chuck Rainey, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, Jake, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to... uh, to ask you, you know, we talked a little bit, uh, you know, previously about uh, how your experience early on playing live night after night in sweaty bars and ballrooms, college gyms, how did that help you in your evolution as a musician? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, number one, it gave me experience with the instrument, uh, the electric bass 
instrument was primarily a new instrument when I first started playing. I wasn't the first to play it, but then I was among the first to play it uh, in the very early 60s. So playing all those uh, bars and clubs and real gigs with different artists, mainly I would say gave me experience with the instrument. Also to experience and just playing different styles and different kinds of music. Um, you know, you, you have to practice. Sometimes you can't just practice at home. You gotta go out on the road and get experience. You also too, you have to learn how to get along in situations that are not favorable to you. Or work in situations where uh, you want primarily, you want the first person to call. Or oh, I wasn't the first person to be called. And sometimes it's very difficult to work with people that you don't care for and work in situations where you, you know, don't really like the situations. You know, poor situations, poor roaming, poor travel, poor food, you know, poor dressing rooms if there was one at that time. <laughs> uh, so in, in loving the music, I guess I got through all that just wanting to play. But I think that it helped me uh, just have experience with my instrument and also working with people in different genres. We live in a society now, especially amongst musicians, they they might come up to you at seminars or something like that and say, you know, I want to play this Chuck, how do I play this Chuck Rainey bass line? How do I get a bass line like Chuck Rainey? And, 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 you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. And like you said, you can't just practice in in your room. And I think that one of the conundrums today, whether it's the cost of travel, <clears throat> lack of venues... Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Just the opportunity of getting up there um, and and playing and seeing people fall apart, get themselves back up, or seeing even an opportunity as part of the rhythm section to say, okay, there's kind of a lull here. I need to kind of do something to keep things rolling. I mean, talk about that's really kind of what I wanted to get at was that that idea of 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 uh, thinking on your feet. And what you could say to younger musicians today who may not have the opportunities to go on the road like you did? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, Jake, is that, um, you know, I'm playing music, especially as a bass player or, or you know, being in the rhythm section, period, whether it's guitar, drums, or, or piano. Uh, when things get to be, as you spoke, and I love all you figure you got to do something, I never really thought that way other than to keep a consistent pattern going. Now, back in the day when I was really uh, playing top 40 music in order to make a living and playing on the road with artists that had records, there, there was always a bass line or bass thought to begin with. And as long as I kept up my part, like a drummer doesn't have time to think, he just has to play whatever the groove of the song is. The leader uh, the band is usually responsible for those lows that you're talking about. When things seem to be at a down and nothing's really happening, um, leaders have to choose musicians that think on their feet. Um, as a bass player, I can't really do anything other than play a bass pattern, a bass line. So I can't do anything and also to listen to, uh, to the other musicians. So I never really worried about uh, that. People that want to play like me or play the way that I play, I run across a lot of musicians that have uh, that do emulate what I do. <clears throat> and when they get into a situation, they think of me and they try and emulate what I did. But they didn't understand that I was playing with certain musicians. 
my ideas come from listening from the guitar player to the piano player and to the drummer, to the drummer for, for feel or for, for, for rhythm, and maybe to uh, the guitar player or piano player who makes a certain indication in the music. You know, just in passing by, it gives me an idea to, you know, to play something uh, with a little bit, um, a little bit more melodious. Um, but I never really worried about that. Other than I've always been, well, not always, because sometimes I have worked in, in rhythm sections that that weren't thinking on their feet, or they were thinking other than what the whole group needs to be thinking about. You know, sometimes alcohol and drugs do get in the way. For bass player, it's very important, I thought, for myself, just to be very consistent in what I was doing and let the leader or other instruments build off of what I was doing. Um... You know, a lot of people want to have their own independent voice in the music. They want to be, you know, they watch MTV, they watch, uh, they listen to uh, the press, you know, they, they read the articles that people write in the magazine about themselves. And they get enamored with, with ways that they want to be like that. But my age group, from where we came up, we never thought about our individual... Um, Legacy, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We thought about each other. You know, mm. it was always a team effort. Because if the guitar player doesn't like me, I'm not going to get the next gig if he is in power or is if he's you know if he has if the leader asks him who who he likes on bass, I want him to like me so I don't run over anybody. Now, of course, I haven't always been perfect. <laughs> I have to learn all these things that I'm talking now about. I have to learn it the hard way. <laughs> learning it, being in situations where things just don't work if I start trying to lay down a signature line or try and be, um, you know, lay down something individual that points to me. I've never really thought that way. I've just played uh, the way that I play, which is rhythmic, more rhythmic than melodious, although, it, you know, a listener can say, well, that's very melodic, but to me, I'm always thinking of rhythm. Like, I think the bass, for me, is like another drum. It has a drum that, um, that is able to voice some kind of melody while I'm playing a rhythm. But that's why we talked earlier about uh, being on the road and playing a lot of bands, doing a lot of sessions, or not even sessions before I start playing sessions, but just playing a lot of gigs and listening to top 40 music. The bass's role, the, the role of the bass is, you know, to support the overall, um, uh, you know, the overall music scene at that particular time. That's what the role of the bass is. It's not solo. It's not to do anything but just to keep a consistent rhythmic bass line. Back in the day, you know, you could recognize a song by the bass line. Nowadays, it's almost impossible not to say that that's bad uh, at all because music does change. But it's very, very difficult. I I have listened to a lot of bass players. As a matter of fact, I listen to, I still do, I listen to the bass line to all the songs that I do listen to and I also to know the sound and quality of uh, a lot of individual bass players. Now, of course, when I sit down to play something and nothing and nothing is written, uh, because I've listened to a lot of the bass players, I do have an idea of what the bass can do because I have listened and still do listen to a lot of music. Uh, I think maybe, too, that's why I was hired so many times in the past, and I always had an idea of what to play because I've listened to a lot of music and I've played other instruments before I played the bass. So I do have an idea of what to do that's going to be consistent and to be very, very, uh, well, just basically to be very consistent in what I'm playing. 
and to make sure that um, that I don't play outside of my strength. Um, a lot of people try and play things that they really can't play. <laughs> right, right. No, no. I, I mean, the when I first started this, this. Uh, this 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 homage to your generation. I I, I looked up your website uh, and um, and and the the motto at the top said know your strengths. And I was like, that is the greatest line because it's not even you could take that across all spectrums. I mean, I think that that part of, part of the issue with like you said, music changes, right? But the people who are playing the music also change, and the values of those people change. And when I talk to uh, <clears throat> Joe Sample, you know, Phil Upchurch, Oscar Brashear, Chuck Rainey, Arthur Adams. It, they, they reiterated the exact same thing that you talked about, which was just being a team. You listen to the Charles Kennard records that you were on, and we'll listen to them. Charles Kennard would play a 10-minute jam with you, and he might play only two minutes of a solo, even though it's his record. You know? He's allowing the accompanists... Bohannon, Adams, Rush, to get out and play their ch- and, and 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 even Rainey would get in for a bass solo once in a while. He would be the last one to solo. You want to talk about taking the ego out of it? I don't think you could. I don't think you could replace the generation. So while you while the music changes, so do the evolution of the people. And I know that my generation and younger generations, we care and we're very. In some ways, we're more progressive than than your generation. Maybe a little more educated, but. But uh, some of that humanity's kind of slipped away. I sort of agree with you. You know, although it's kind of hard to, I don't want to put down to be negative about what's going on today. I do know that the individuals have almost disappeared. Right. Nowadays, you have bass players that would be very good trumpet players, or very good guitar players, or piano players, and they just, uh, you know, they they play their feel because the you know the bass is a big instrument, and uh, it gets a lot of attention. And a lot of people just want attention on the bandstand. Whereas in, when I came up playing, the only attention that uh, we needed was that we were good players and that we could be, uh, uh, you know, used and worked with just as a good player and not on the way that we looked or what kind of strap we had or what kind of bass we played. Well, of course, back in my day, when I first started, there was only one bass to play. Uh, but of course, they have many bass manufacturers now, but... You know, we were not individuals. Uh, we were individuals as a team. All the people that you mentioned, you know, that day is just about over. Although when we say things are over, there's always things happening off on the side and under the radar that are still the same way because there's still a lot of young musicians that, that think the way that I'm speaking now. You know, you want to make the band sound good. You know, you want to make, you want to do your part. Every instrument has a role. The bass has a role to be consistent like a drum and to provide a bottom so that everybody else can create. Now, of course, the individual playing the bass, uh, we'll talk about bass players, but the individual playing the bass has to bring something to the table. And what I bring to the table is many, 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 many hours of practice. Many hours of practice. I'm talking about many. And knowing the instrument, you cannot do anything unless you know the instrument that you're playing what it will do and what it won't do. Some instruments, although a bass is a, is a bass, they're, they're all different. You know, if, if, if I can use the cliche or term of like uh, girlfriends, mm-hmm. you know, before we get married, we, we go through 
dating different girls, and they're all different, although they're the same. <laughs> but you have to expect from the instrument right. what the instrument does. Right, right, right. You know, so that comes up. I spent a lot of time practicing. Also, to understanding what the role of my instrument is. People have to like you in order to hire you or want to work with you to a certain point. Now, there's some people that are not, that are not like that will, but they are extraordinary musicians. And you just put up with certain personalities and certain characters because you want the best musician as you possibly can. So it all boils down to just playing a whole lot to find out what works and what doesn't work and where, where you know where you're strong at and where you're weak at. And you get the experience of, the, you know, of, of just knowing when to do what and what not to do. I think what not to do is more important than than it is to know what to do. And not to, uh, yeah, and, 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 and thank you for reeling me back in, because again, I really, this is not about, I, it is not my role or job. I'm not a musician. I, I don't want to, uh, there are so many talented cats out there, but I look at, you know, like Harold Land. I mean, you weren't necessarily, I mean, you were so busy that you didn't necessarily go I'm, you know, I just know that there were guys like Harold Land who would, who would bring Bobby Hutcherson and they would bring the skipper over. They'd bring people to their house to play. And then they would go to, and I just, it's, it's like, I look at you guys as the last big brothers. And, 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 and it, even though the, the dynamics of how music is disseminated, has, it's changed so much. But I look at you guys as the guys that should be mentoring the way you were mentored. You know, and that is, it's painful to me that, that while yes, I mean, again, we t we've talked about this, Japan, Europe, it's, the, the music is still flourishing. It, it is, I just, I, I know that you guys would be just incredible mentors on the same level that Dizzy and Moody and, you know, the list goes on and on and on, but yet, it, it, you know, it, it moves on. And I'm not trying to carp on that. I just, I wish you guys had opportunities in forums and not necessarily in specialized schools or universities, just the opportunity to work with younger musicians in a, in live settings, the way you used to do it, you know, with King Curtis going up and down the blue circuits in, in Missouri and whatnot. Well, you know, one of the problems is, you know, like the ego is a large part of what we do, and how we handle the ego uh, is very, very important. Um, there are a lot of great musicians, as you mentioned. Even now, today, there are a lot of great musicians. And uh, some are thought of well, and some are not thought of as being so well, but the ego has a lot to do with how you present yourself, especially in conversations like this. I've heard a lot of interviews from players that I admire, but when I hear them talk, I hear more ego. Uh, in, in, well, well, I have an ego, for sure. We all have an ego. But I, the ego, sometimes if it's not channeled or controlled, people begin to make more out of themselves than what they really are. Now, I consider myself, just in being a, in a practical term, I'm just a simple monk that plays the bass. I like to say that because, like, I've studied music, i practiced a whole lot during my career, still practice a lot, but I'm a simple person in that I play simply, although it doesn't sound that way. But I do have a style to where I know what does not work, and there's too many bass notes. So I try and play a lot of rhythm on the few notes that I do play, and then, of course, younger players or players listening to me think that I play, I'm this incredible bass player that has... 14 fingers and I'm doing all this, but that's not the case. <laughs> uh, I have just studied myself for over the 
50 years. I know what I do well, and I know what I want to present. But when people begin to go into lectures or people go into seminars, they have not been schooled or trained on how to talk to younger people. They have a tendency to talk more about themselves and to say things that don't really make sense. What makes sense is for the individual to sit down and practice, just play. One of my favorite people is Bird. And that when he talks, he talks very, very honestly about who he is. And he's just a plain guy, he says, and he's just practiced a whole lot all the time. And the things that uh, people think that he created or invented, he didn't really invent it or create it. He was just being what his practice taught him to do or what he can't do. So he was just showing, like, you know, if you see a person that, uh, it, a person in your neighborhood, and he's maybe a block away, and they're running away, and, but you know who they are. They're running away from you. And you know you know who they are because of the way they run. Everybody does not run the same way. Everybody does not walk the same way. But we all run and we all walk. We all don't laugh the same way. We all don't wear the same colors. We all don't drive the same car. The cars are different colors and different brands. But we get to where we're going because a car is a car. A run is a run. A walk is a walk. It's all individual. Some people have a nice smile. Some people have a smirky smile. People have to find out who they are and do it well. But when people start talking to groups of people about the, who they who they are and what they should do, a lot of times I think it's fifty fifty that they go too far, and they think you know they 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 sort of get above themselves uh, if I can use that phrase. They don't really they're not honest about what happens and what does not happen. Everybody wants to say the best that they possibly can about themselves. And, uh, and and promote the best out of themselves that they can, especially in interviews and articles. And the problem and, is that, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, if you get to a certain level, um, uh, you, you know, these, these there's not a really the long format interview anymore, which is why I love doing this stuff, because you get to get into the soul of the musician themselves. If you've got 10, you know, I, but... You know, it's my job, one of my jobs, I was thinking about this interview yesterday, and I said, you know, I am just, you know, I, there's just so much music that we uh, we need to get to, Chuck, and I, I was hoping to play a track here, and, and uh, I'm not sure when the last time you heard it, but uh, come back and maybe you can walk us through, you know, uh, what you were, what you were doing on the track. Is that okay?
was Hampton doing that was so kind of revolutionary at that time in your mind? Well, in my mind, basically, as a jazz piano player who wanted to play uh, ethereal music or jazz music over something that was connected with rhythm or that had some kind of a groove to it. Um, I liked them a whole lot. I liked some of the up-tempo stuff that we did a little bit more. But when you uh, when you hear a musician wanting to do something or something like what, what you just played, you sort of like get into what what they have explained, what they want to do. They want some kind of rhythm. or And two, you know, see, he was concerned with selling records, but he wanted to keep his identity and selling, you know, into what he was doing. Um, I did like his music a whole lot. And it's not the time to agree or disagree with what he's thinking because he was an artist. He was a very good piano player. And it was his uh, session. And it was his idea. So the one thing that we all have to, had to do was to get into his head and try to appease him or try to accommodate him and what he wanted. Because, you know, in making his records or making records that are sellable, I've been wrong about as many times as I've been right. When I say I like something, I don't think it's going to do anything. 50% of the time is up being a hit, a well-liked. The things that I liked and I thought would sell a whole lot, it would be very good didn't sell at all. But then that has a lot to do with the record company. Some things are not marketed uh, correctly. Oh, well, I wouldn't say correctly, but they're just not marketing. No, they're just not marketed, rather. Uh, Hamp was that kind of a person. Uh, I did like, as I mentioned earlier, I did like the more up-tempo stuff where I had a chance to play a groove, a danceable groove, or at least a groove that, you know, would have you popping your fingers. When you went into the studio, you'd get the the charts, you know, you wouldn't get a lot of information. You just kind of say, he'd kind of give you a sketch and then you'd kind of have to just do it on your, I mean, that was, it was totally seemed like it was just, it was just kind of on the fly, you know, and, and that's what made it so kind of organic. That's what makes it good too, because if you have a chance, if you have a chance to really study the music, maybe it comes off a little bit better. But uh, my experience in researching and recording music, if I have heard it before, I have too much of a chance to be very specific on what I think I want to hear as opposed to doing it on the fly. Um, uh, I'm old school. And basically, if somebody tells you what the tempo is and they, they, they give you an idea of what the song is or you work at it for about an hour, um, you know, it's, it, it's the best approach because music is abstract to a, to a large degree. And depending upon who's in the rhythm section, we all have to, you know what, it's like meeting a group of people for the first time and you have a conversation on the subject. Say you want to talk about the moon and you just meet people for the first time or maybe you're meeting it's the same people and you just start talking about the moon. Now, of course, if you have an opportunity to study what you want to say and how you want to say it, it may come off a little bit better, but music-wise, it's like dance or abstract art or even not abstract art, but art, period. You just do. A painter doesn't have a chance to make a mark on a canvas and then erase it. He has to have something immediately in his mind. Well, he may think about it before he starts doing it, but once you put the line, make a mark on the canvas, you know, you can't erase it if it's paint. Um, music is the same way. You know, you get together with people. Uh, sometimes we know each other, sometimes we don't. But the artists 
but the, the leader explains what he wants to do and how he wants to do it, and he has hired people that he uh, expects to have a point of view about what he's talking about. And uh, that's why I like the, I like the people like him, and that he was abstract, especially in his jazz. And I think he knew that. That's why he wanted to have a solid foundation underneath him, or at least musicians that understood what he was doing and they would sort of compliment what he was doing. And Dougal is a great musician. And I love playing with him. I, I, I enjoy knowing him as, as a person, a personal friend. He's yes. a good friend of mine. Yes. We're friends with each other. Very, you know, we work together a lot. And... You know, it's just great to be able to sit with somebody and all of us, you know, within a short period of time, we all agree on what should go under who we're playing for. Spider-Web was the same way. Yeah, we're not, we do not want to rush into this. I, I Again, I, I the one for my audience's sake, I mean, one thing about Chuck Rainey's bass playing, that I think that it's, it's booty-shaking bass playing. People dance, you grew up in a time when, when music was made for dancing. And yeah. that, that's what your bass lines do. So on this next track, I promise you'll hear your bass on this one. Okay? Okay. Thank you. 
instruments other than the electric bass is the tuba. And uh, originally I was a uh, trumpet player in high school and college. And uh, in college I switched to baritone horn, which gave me a little closer reach to the bass clef, although I didn't know I was going to be a bass player. But a lot of my playing uh, comes from listening to a lot of tuba, especially in organized uh, progressive music. You know, those uh, uh, people that do play it, like in New Orleans, tuba player, you know, they have a tuba player, or in Mexican music where they have a tuba playing the bass. And so a lot of that, too, I, I love marching bands, and uh, especially show bands. I just left Atlanta watching the Battle of Bands with my son, actually with my uh, with my son and daughter and two grandkids. Mm. And uh, we, I do that every year because I like to hear the tubas, of course, the drum cadence is also too. So when I'm playing, I think that's what put me and Bernard Purdy more or less on the same track in that um, I don't know if he uh, was into show band uh, march music or drum cadences, but uh, when I was uh, younger, I also played field tom in a marching band. So on crews like that, uh, I'm more or less thinking of stepping I mean, look at the show bands. I'm looking at uh, people just being in a group and, and, and playing. And I guess the tuba has a whole lot to do with how I think about the bass. Um, by the way, what was that you just played? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, that was uh, Gary Burton on Atlantic, uh, an, mm -hmm. uh, an album called Good Vibes. That song was called Boston Marathon. And the reason I played it was because uh, when I talked to Bernard... Uh, you know, he talked about the the ultimate iconic New York rhythm section, uh, which was, you know, himself, uh, you, uh, Eric Gale, who was just on fire on that. He was playing a guitar solo there. And then uh, underneath that undulating organ was uh, Richard T. And I just I, I just say to myself, how really spontaneous and how <clears throat> how invigorating it must have been. I mean, I mean, Bernard said that when somebody called him for a gig, you guys were the rhythm section. I mean, that was that was it. And when a guy like Burton might come in from the West Coast, you guys were doing it, and they would make the album sound completely different. And I, it just, to me, it, what when I listened to that, Gary let uh, Gale go off, and uh, and and it was just it, it it was a it was it was a hip tune. It was just it was it was a it was a it was a, a strutting tune, and uh, and it was and I just was hoping you could talk a little bit about. Those guys and and uh, and and what they meant to your uh, career and 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 uh, and the music. Well, for one thing, uh, uh, that particular rhythm session, we played so much together. It's like we were a family. We did do hundreds of recordings together. That's the rhythm session. If it wasn't Richard T, it was Paul Griffin. Um, and we just played so much together. Also, too, we were in a state of mind of being free. People very seldom wrote for us. They would just give a chord chart. And we were sort of just naked up, just to be free. All predicated on what the idea was at that time. Um, but we played so much together that we were almost like a family. We were a family. Um, Bernard and I play a lot alike. If I were a drummer, I would probably play just like he plays. <laughs> and if he were a bass player, he would probably play just like I play. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard T. cannot ever be replaced by anybody. He was very, very, very special. People have no idea 
how special Richard was. Can you talk a little bit about the the qualities in particular? Because I, I you, all you can get now, if if you even have LPs, are pictures and maybe people writing. But if you could talk about, you know, that kind of family camaraderie about Richard T would be fantastic. Well, Richard was very very special, as I mentioned. Uh, there's no one like him. There's no one would ever be like him. I, I've been around a lot of keyboard players that do emulate what he did, but they, you know, you always emulate somebody, but it comes off, doesn't quite come off as that person. But Richard T was what I call an absolute musician. Um, very good keyboard player, very good bass player, too, by the way, on the keyboard. Uh, never minded Richard. Let's get a producer record in, in New York once and hired Richard T on organ. And he played the bass line on organ, and it was just fantastic. As I said, I've done, I did that uh, several times with Richard. Mm-hmm. A great, he had great ideas. He's a great, special musician. Uh, had absolute pitch, not perfect pitch, but absolute pitch. And uh, he was an excellent musician. Always had a groove. a great arranger too. I agree. I worked with Richard many, many times when he was the arranger. He did those things very quickly, and it was always right on. Very, very special person when he came on the scene. Very, very special. I miss him. I, I miss him dearly. I really miss him. Yeah. No. And and uh, and Cornell is 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 has left us as well. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I look at you guys. Uh, you know. It didn't matter if, if it was, um, you know, the Fillmore East, Bill Graham, uh, you know, sort of just, you know, joint uh, clubs where you just, where it was meant for boogie down. I mean, I just, could you talk a little bit about how active you were and how filled up your calendar was uh, in the late Well, season? in my New York years, that's all I did uh, after, uh, after I left King Curtis Band. Uh, I uh, was a studio musician, and I played, uh, I did demos, I did everything at all. You know, part of the success, too, as far as being on a lot of records, is somebody would call, and um, if I'm not working, I would rather play for nothing or for little rather than to sit in my apartment, because I am a player. Right. I was really a player then, especially if they said um, that Richard and uh, Bernard and Eric, you want to get, now Eric was my contractor for, that's how I got in the industry. Eric was a contractor. We met on the Sam Cooke tour. And I don't know who put that band together, but we were on tour with Sam Cooke, and that's when I met him, and he told me to get a, a telephone number or an answering service, and he would put me on sessions. Because he was playing bass and then overdubbing the guitar on the sessions that he contracted. Hmm. Uh, so my days were full. I did not see the sun for three years <laughs> uh, you know, during the day because we were always working even on Saturday and Sunday. Of course, you get uh, you get to where you have enough money to where you can turn down something on the weekend or take the weekend off, which we did. Eric, uh, me and Eric and Richard did do that several times, just take Friday the Monday off and go to uh, Jamaica or go to Bermuda just to hang. And to be careful now because that's how we got in the industry by other people uh, who, 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 our predecessors, they were making so much money or making enough money to where they would just take off for a week. They were not available. And they were the older crew. And so the young crew, me, Eric, and Bernard, <laughs> uh, although out of the crew, Bernard was probably the first of us to start 
doing regular studio work. But um, we, uh, the schedule's full, you know, three sessions a day. And sometimes a gig at night. My, my whole life was just playing that bass. Just all, for about maybe two or three years before I started taking vacations and started going out for a week with somebody. Or I never really did that, but maybe a weekend. I know with Roberta, she only worked the weekends. Um, and so I would, um, maybe I worked Friday through Monday in New York. But while I was in New York, that's what I did. I was a bass player. And that's all I did was play all day, sometimes half the night. That That is an interesting, you know, your predecessors. I, I'd like to spend a minute on that. Just the idea, I guess, you know, Everett Barksdale, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bob Bush- Right, but Bob Bushnell, Bob Bushnell on bass. Uh, Bob Bushnell. Mm-hmm. You know, and See, they were older than we were. We were in our early twenties, and they were in their early thirties. Yeah, you know, put me in a put me in a bar in Jamaica with Chuck Rainey in, in, in our early twenties. We would have a great time. I mean, that 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 to me is a blast. And then you know, the idea that what. What what did those how did those guys handle themselves? If what did you learn, if anything, from how those guys carried themselves, or were they already kind of already so firmly established that they were, uh, you know, they had checked out, or were they were they there to uh, encourage you and to uh, you know keep it happening? Well, uh, they weren't there to encourage because it's very competitive, right? Of course, uh, and of course, two bass players very seldom see each, see each other. Two drummers very seldom see each other. We know that um, there is. A, I knew I knew Bob Bushnell and I knew Jimmy Tyrell. Uh, I knew all the other bass players that were on the scene, but we never got a chance to see each other unless it was between sessions at Jim and Andy's on Forty Fourth uh, Street, I think Forty Eighth Street, Broadway. We might run across, you know, each other and say, "Hey, how you doing?" Or to meet each other. One thing about them, that generation that was before us, they were all business. They all dressed in suits. And uh, and Bernard Perkins still does to this day. I mean, maybe not as much as he did, but they all dressed in suits. And they all, uh, we were all in the union. And um, they were all business. Uh, but one, one, one difference in them is we lived in Manhattan. And most of our predecessors lived on the island. Uh, where they have to take a train or drive into Manhattan. Really? Sometimes the weather is bad or you, you, you need somebody right away, whether they call Bob Bushnell or uh, Everett Boxdale, who lived on the island, they would call somebody that was relatively close to the studio. And I lived in Manhattan all my New York career, and so did Bernard. Um, and so did Paul. Uh, Richard lived in Brooklyn, but in Brooklyn it's closer to Manhattan than the island, that's for sure. Dum, 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 dum,
and jump parts are done. <laughs> very simple. When we came in in the mid-60s, we were evolved into playing more of a doom, 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 on the bass and the drums were playing like Bernard, you know, adding 16th rhythms to the drum part. Also, too, we were hungrier than the guys who had houses on Long Island. We would have been in Manhattan, where there are no houses. <laughs> and uh, we would work for less money sometimes. Also, too, we would work when there was not a lot of money on the table. Because we weren't established. And we just wanted to play. And you make more money doing studio work than you would waiting for a gig at night. So I guess to answer your question, the older generation before us, or the people that we've been talking about, the only thing that I see how they helped me or helped us and they were a straight business. You know, you call them, they make a, they make, you know, they would schedule it and they would be on time. And they look presentable. Uh, nowadays, people show up any kind of way. You know, it's uh, funny that yeah. it, it's, 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 it's one of those things where you, you know, I for, I just wasn't around, but it, you know, you, you assume that everybody is, you know, is, is, uh, I shouldn't say that, but you know, you look at some of the. You assume that you're, you know, you're you're tight with everybody, but the fact is, it was super, it was hyper competitive. And here, are these guys, sort of like a football player, you know, we were talking about Deacon Jones and those guys the other day. You know, you, you see like an old nose tackle or a bass player, or drummer, you know, uh, you know, they're 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 not as uh, not as much energy, you know, they're not as fluid. And then they got you know younger crop of people coming up, and they're not going to be overly gracious to you, you know. That, that that that's pretty obvious. It was it was a very, um, but you were, I, I think it, you know it's important. I, I mean, going back to your, um, you mentioned it earlier, but you grew up in Youngstown and then moved to Cleveland. But you played a number of instruments prior to the bass. And uh, I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about that and, and how maybe that made you a little more grounded, gave you gave you a little more confidence uh, as a young musician. Well, one thing for sure, I've had enough music in my life from a very early childhood. I came up in the Pentecostal church, a family church, listening to a lot of music in church. And then, of course, uh, being in the uh, being a 40s child and listening to R&B, uh, I was in a doo-wop group, you know, uh, the doo-wop singing, I was, uh, loved that. Uh, and then the R&B. Uh, with R&B, they didn't have much bass in it. So, um, I played guitar before I played bass. And it's after playing the trumpet and playing classical music and playing march marching band music with the trumpet and hearing the drums and hearing the tuba and then also to loving R&B. Where back in the fifties, you know, there was there was no bass, just guitar, and so I played guitar after playing the baritone horn, and was in uh, two bands in Youngstown as a guitar player, and then finally uh, I was in a band where there was only uh, with three guitar players and a drummer, and I played sing on note patterns, and the leader's wife played rhythm, and he was the lead player, and he sang. So finally, somebody said, I think it was a drummer, said, you know, why don't you get a bass? And so I got a bass. And that's what started uh, my career as a bass player, because I was already playing single note patterns um, on the guitar. And so it does give a lot of confidence. You know, I spent, um, I was born in Cleveland, but, my, but I was raised up in Youngstown, where my father's side of the 
Casey uh, with the band that was in Youngstown because they were from Cleveland. Uh, and they were in Youngstown a whole lot doing gigs, only 60 miles away. And you know, you got a gig where the gig is. And so they picked me up as a guitar player. And then in that band, I got a bass because there was no, <laughs> I wasn't that good of a guitar player. It was because <laughs> my hands are big and thick. <laughs> and so it worked real good for playing those sandal patterns on the uh, on the electric bass. So I went uh, back to Cleveland with them, and it was easy for me because that's where my mother's family was from. It's a very large family, so it was originally my birthplace. Although I was not raised or uh, or taught there, all my music started in Youngstown. Um, and then from Cleveland, I got stranded in Montreal and stayed there for about nine nine months. I thought I was in love. <clears throat> and the band that I went there with, when they left going back to New York, I just stayed there. And when they came back to Montreal, by nine months later to, to do another gig, I was already there, so they didn't have to bring a bass player. <clears throat> and when they left, I left with them and went to New York. So I've never had problems with, uh, with music. Other than if, if it was a top 40 gig, I'd do all the bass lines to all the records that were on the air. Uh, definitely because I listen, as I mentioned earlier, I listen to a lot of music. I still do. So I have never had a problem. And going to New York, I didn't have a problem because I, I know from my upbringing in Youngstown that everybody wants to try the new, you know, wants to try the new guy. Um, and so when I got to New York, you know, I had a couple of friends that uh, helped me out for a second because I uh, was not working that much. And did a lot of sitting in. And it's like anything else, you know, like uh, new people come around, if they can play, they're going to get a gig. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to try the new guy. And a few people wanted to try me, and they did. And I fared, you know, fairly well. Well, uh, I've always liked competition. Not that I thought that was that good, but I hear somebody playing, I said, wow, I can do that, or I would like that. You know, as you know, it is competitive. You got to show up. And the one way to show up is to show up not with the ego, but to show up playing. Can this person play? Can they, can they be on time? Do they get drunk? Do they get high? Can I count on this person to be on the gig? You know, I've always just presented myself just as a bass player. And I can do this. If you like me, I'll be glad to work with you. That kind of thing. How, uh, how extensive i mean i think it's you know it, it it's it's readily apparent to me i mean uh, you know that the drugs played a role um in the uh you know in the in <clears throat> within the scene especially going out to california in the early 70s um and i wonder how it affected uh you know the, the you know if you tried to um intervene on behalf of certain friends if you saw them f- falling down um because you know it, it was a it was a kind of a druggy time period the music was fantastic there was the crossover of acoustic to electric instrumentation you had the motown gallop crossing over to jazz all this amazing stuff but then uh you know people were partying pretty hard too and i'm trying to figure out how you were able to navigate that part of it because it, there it was definitely an element to the scene well easy because I'm like Bernard Purdy. We, we, we both have the same birth sign. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I think our birthday is on the same day. No. But, you know, some some people do. The, the, the cliche, birds of a feather flock together. Mm-hmm. 
you're on the bandstand with somebody that you like and they're high or they're using drugs, that's what they brought to the table. And it's best to let them, you know, you help them if you can, but it's best to stay away. I work with some very, very, very rude people uh, with drugs and, um, and, and alcohol. And the thing is, I love them. I love working with them. Except I've never been that way. And although I do fit, like Bernard, Bernard has been as clean as a whistle. That's the first day that I knew him. He's always on time. He's always there. I'm always on time. I'm always there. People like me. And um, when it comes to that kind of element with drugs, especially drugs, uh, and I'm not coming off as a, two, a goody two-shoes person here. But what I am saying is that, number one, it's against the law. Number two, it smells bad, even if it's alcohol. Number one, there are a lot of people who just do not like being around people who are drug addicts, which is very bad because sometimes you're paired with a drug addict, and you've got to be careful about your possessions. And so it's just a matter of making a choice. Do I want to room when, uh, during the days when you had to room with somebody on the road? Do I want to room with this person? It's either pure yes or no with an understanding. I'm not not a part of this. I don't want to be connected to this because people will look at uh, a group and decide that all these people are the same, which is not the case. There are a lot of people that get involved with people that they, you know, they don't do what they do, but they get involved with them to where it looks like they are. To me, it does not matter. I'm, some of the best musicians that I played with were using heroin. The music was perfect, but after the music is over, it was just a drag being around them. Right. For a lot of reasons, as, as you can imagine. Especially when it comes to, to smoking. Uh, a cigarette, smoking cigarettes or smoking uh, uh, marijuana. Uh, it's, 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 it's distasteful when you've got to smell it. And a lot of people just don't do those things. And a lot of producers and arrangers just don't do it. And it's not, you know... You know, my whole thing is when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Now, that's good on one side of the coin, but not so good on the other side of the coin. Um, <laughs> people are, one of, one of my most favorite musicians is Greg Gaines. Very, very clean living guy. One of the best piano players I've ever worked with, aside from Richard G. And Richard was involved in everything. You know, still a great musician. Greg Gaines involved in nothing, no alcohol, no smoking, just a, a real nice guy who plays his behind off. You know, so it's all a matter of who you are and how you can handle certain things. Um, you, you know, you know, you make a choice. A lot of people start doing these things because their favorite person or another person does it and they think that's going to help them play. That's not the truth. You know, that's not so much the truth. You know, doing what somebody else is doing is not going to help you play better. What's going to help you play better is just being just knowing what the knowing your instrument and just being a good musician. So it didn't bother me at all working with people that were alcoholics or people that were smokers or people that were on heavy drugs. It didn't bother me at all. Because when the music was over I did not have to go home with them and I did not have to hang out with them. You might meet them or see them when you're hanging out between sessions. As I mentioned like Jim and Andy's that was the local hanging point. In Manhattan, between sessions, you might see somebody, you know, in Jim and Andy's, hey, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. But basically, uh, you know, if you don't hang, uh, 
just play the music. And when the music's over, everybody goes their separate ways. That's a decision that the individual has to make. With me, it didn't bother me at all working with someone who was uh, not clean or someone who was red-eyed or someone who was drunk. Because I didn't hire them. Somebody else hired them. And that somebody else had to know whether they were good or whether they were good, not so good. As I mentioned before, some of the greatest musicians that I worked with were, were heavy drug users or alcoholics. Didn't bother me at all because they were great musicians. Right. No, and I, and I, I uh, but, you know, did you, did you yourself dabble in that stuff? I only ask because I have these records, you know, where I'm looking and like, you know, there's Chuck Rainey like playing a bass line and he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. You know, I don't, you know, so I'm like, I, I, Carol Kay, the bass player, won't even come and talk to me because of some of the experience she had with people that you're very close with. And of course I did dibble and dabble over a period of time. And, that, and so did she. One thing about Carol Kay that's been very, very disheartening is that um, when, I, when I see, and, I, and Carol and I were good friends at one time. Of course. But people like Carol are the people who I'm talking about. They will do all of the best that they can to say because I've been in situations where uh, I don't know if she ever smoked, but I know she did smoke. Uh, I mean, I did too at one time. But this, you know, it depends upon how far you take it. Of course, I smoke cigarettes. Everybody else did. Now nobody smokes, including so me. You know, there are times and phases when you go in and out of uh, certain phases of smoking, or even I never have been a drinker. I never have. Uh, uh, I don't drink at all. Never have. And when it comes to the things like drugs and cocaine, of course everybody did do cocaine every now and then. Some people went too far with it. And that goes with her also, because I've been in situations with her where we did a line together or where somebody was smoking. I've never said, you know, stuff like that. But you got to be careful who, who you, what you believe uh, from certain kind of people. And, you know, I'm not a booty. I wasn't a booty two-shoes all the time. But... I was always clean and very careful of when, where, and how, uh, when you did it, or when it was. Also, too, for me, my constitution physically is very is not is not is not strong for that, especially alcohol. I learned that before I left Youngstown. <laughs> right. I'm not a, I'm not an alcohol drinker at all. Number one, it makes my breath smell bad, and it makes me stupid. <laughs> um, so, uh, so once I turn, once I once I. Um, you know, left, I guess I was 22, I never, you know, I don't drink at all. But during those days, every now and then, if there was cocaine around, of course I did a little cocaine, like everybody everybody else did, including her. Um, because personally, you know, with her, um, when it comes to marijuana, I've never been much of a marijuana smoker at all. Because, again, it smells, people know that you've been doing it also, it makes me stupid. So, like, uh, a long, long time ago, when I was doing it, it was just very little every now and then. I would just do it just just to be a part of the game for a second, uh, but never to where I got stupid or oh, my eyes were red or oh, I couldn't think. Some people go too far. You know, before we wrap up part one here with Chuck Rainey, I just wanted to uh, play another track of music, uh, something again uh, outside of you know what people might consider uh, Chuck Rainey on. Uh, he did it all. Uh, let's take a listen to it, and we'll come back and talk about it.
I, I, I listen to that in, my, in the car with my daughters, and we're always dancing to that one. That was uh, 1972, David Clayton Thomas. Um, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, if I, I seriously, Chuck, I mean, there's a picture of you on the inside gatefold. You're holding a puppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and truthfully, again, I mean, it looks like it was a bla- spider, spiders on the album. This guy, uh, you know, William Smitty Smith and David. Clay- mm-hmm. But the idea is that, you know, Clayton Thomas, this guy, you know, Canadian cat. Uh, playing that roots and soul and R&B, that blues, and what I love about it, I don't know if you were contracted with Columbia or whatever, but it's like, he's like, no, there's, I'm bringing in Chuck Rainey and Spiderweb to, uh, you know, to, to do the session, you know, it just, that, that, that to me was the, the, the beauty of that time period, and you guys made that album. Well, no, we rehearsed that album. Is that Sunrise Tequila? Tequila Sunrise, tequila that's right. Sunrise. That's right. Yeah. Well, number one, David and I were friends long before that record. How did you guys meet originally? Uh, we met in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a background singer and a, an excellent singer. To this day, David and I are, are friends. And uh, that rhythm section right there, I worked many times with Tessie Calderon, with mm-hmm. Spider, and with Smitty. Uh, we, worked, we did a lot of sessions together in, in, uh, in L.A. Now, David lived in Mandeville Canyon. Uh, in in uh, in L.A. <clears throat> for that album, <clears throat> he recorded that album. Well, we rehearsed that album many days at his house, and it was always great to go out there because we had to ride through Beverly Hills in order to get there. And uh, he had a nice house. We had a wonderful time, and uh, we spent probably Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for about two weeks rehearsing those songs or just being together. As a matter of fact, Tessie and Spider went out on the road with him. I couldn't go because I was too busy. Uh, but uh, he, he was always a pleasure to be around, David Clayton Thomas. He's a pleasure to be around now. A very good singer, a very nice guy. Uh, I found him to be wonderful to be around. And, uh, you know, uh, those brand, that brings back great memories. That puppy, uh, the kid, uh, <laughs> uh, the puppy was there, and I'm into dogs. I like I like dogs, especially babies. Sure. And the puppy was so sweet; he just came to me, and so I held him, you know, for a long, long time every day. Uh, I like that puppy. <laughs> That's great that you mentioned that. Well, no, because I, I mean, that. I look at I look at you, and I'm saying, <laughs> I, you know, I find this album like at a used thrift store for like twenty five cents, and it's uh-huh. you know, and and um, again. Whether you know unintentional, intentionally or not, I mean, he, I, I'm trying to figure out where, where, where did you guys actually cut the album? It looks like you're in the Bahamas or something. Uh no, uh, those pictures were taken in his house. <laughs> and was that in, that was in California? Yeah. All right, because I was going to say, you know, just the idea, you know, and there's other tracks that are I, I couldn't, you know, it's so hard, Chuck, to sometimes figure out which ones to play because, um. You know, it, they, it covers the whole gambit. And the thing about Clayton Thomas, I've talked to Amos Garrett, who uh, knew him, and I mean, his he was a his father was a brutal father to him. He used to beat him a lot, and then uh, one day he 
he said, David, you're in trouble. Come downstairs. And, and David beat him to a pulp. And then his dad called the cops on him. And, you know, you want to talk about an upbringing, a rugged upbringing that would, you know, you know, I don't know what it would go down in today's society like that. But to, to be able to still come out of that and be, uh, you know, he, he I, I would love to at some point get a chance to talk to him because I think he's got a pretty compelling story to tell. And he obviously. Well, knew, he does. Yeah. See, one thing about David that people don't realize well, they probably do, but he's a, a very good vocalist. And in New York, he was fun to be around. His father wouldn't thank him because David's not a little guy. <laughs> he's right. not a little at all. Right. And, um, uh, you know, he's, he, he's a sturdy, stocky guy with a great voice. And very, very serious. Everybody that works with him is, uh, that I knew at that time was his friend. And so I forgive him. He probably called me because uh, we were friends. And I had them a lot of sessions. One thing, too, uh, to realize, too, uh, Jake, is that a lot of times the people that you see that are, that are continually on a lot of records, mm-hmm. some of that is because of the name value on the record. There was a time, and it probably that's the way it is right now, to where when you do a record, if you have name brand people on your record, Radio personalities get involved. Uh, record companies get involved. Whoever is, uh, dis- you know, distributing the record. You know, if you have a name value person, a person who is who has been aired on a lot of other records, it helps sell the record. I know a lot of people that don't even bother listening to the record once they look and see who's on it, then they buy it. Uh, I was that way for a second when I was buying records. I'm never really. I've never really been a great record buyer. But when I see certain musicians on the record, I'll just get it. <laughs> because those musicians are on there. And, and, and that happens with me. I've been hired a whole lot because of my name value on the record. Uh, I would like to say something other than that, like, because I'm a good player, but it's not really true. A lot of us are on so many records because our name is popular. Uh, especially to, uh, to radio personalities. Um... But David, I'm glad you brought him up because I really like the guy. He came through here a couple of years ago with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I don't think he's with that organ. Well, he's not. Rob Pepperos, he took his part. I worked a lot with Raw. But he came through here with his band, and I opened the show. Uh, I opened his show here in Dallas with my band, and it was such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. You know, Chuck, I just want to, before we wrap things up for part one, I just, I, I want to tell you that... Um, you know, I, I've as I sit here and know, you know, the road that I've been traveling for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, my new baby. Uh, every time I walk her up and down these, we have these long rolling hills here in Tucson, and I. Um, there's one song we didn't play it today, but um, I just, you know, you you don't have you you're a humble cat, but the, you're playing, and you the the. Personality that you inject into playing has helped me psychologically fend off a lot of demons. And um, I'm not listen. If you, if you saw my record collection, it's 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 one of the most eccentric, you know, targeted collections of music. But um, you have provided 
uh, me a lot of stability psychologically um, in my life. And uh, I, I just can't thank you enough for being as honest and open. And quite frankly, I, I want to take this, uh, this, this, these sessions to, um, to elongate your career and not just obsess about Steely Dan, which seems to be everybody's favorite thing to talk to you about. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you, you've had a, uh, I think that's the I think that's the issue in our society now. It's quantitative and qualitative, and we're very much a quantitative uh, 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 society now. How much money do you make? If you make a lot of money, it must mean you're successful. If you don't make a lot of money, it must mean you're not doing something right. As opposed to the quantitative value of actually playing music, for instance, where how, you can't put a you can't put a number value on you know, uh, on, on, on helping somebody psychologically, you know, and I think that that is one of the most important things, uh, that a lot of you guys, not just yourself, but you were one of them. And, uh, I wanted to say thank you for this, uh, this, this opportunity. And I look forward to, to picking this up with you, uh, uh tomorrow. Well, man, what a pleasure. It's great talking to you, man. By the way, you know, I used to come to Tucson kind of regularly. I have a cousin in Sierra Vista. Oh, great. Well, please, I mean, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. And I used to come, come to go from Sierra Vista up to uh, Tucson. Actually, I did it as a one-man show at the Westwood Book Review. Uh, the Westwood Book, I think there's a, there's a club there in Tucson called the Westwood Look. Absolutely. I live about five minutes away, yeah. Well, I did that for about, <clears throat> over the course of maybe a year, I probably did that about ten times as a one-man show. I told stories and played my bass, drummed it like a guitar, uh, bass and, you know, strumming bass notes and rhythm, and telling stories, country and western stories. Uh, I did that about eight times in the, over the course of maybe two years in, at, at the, uh, there in Tucson. Well, I, I, uh, yeah, you know, there's there maybe there's some some future collaboration. Dallas uh, is not that far. Uh, Dallas and Tucson are not that far apart. And there's a. Uh, I met some cat. I met one one person, one cat in particular. Um, guy used to play with Sam Taylor, uh, Lamont Arthur, when Sam was here, and uh, he's a B three player from your generation. And I promoted a concert for him. He's down in Sierra Vista. Um, who knows? Who knows what'll happen in the future, Chuck? But. Um, uh, I'm going to clean this up and, uh, and I will be in touch tomorrow because we, we still have to get into, uh, the West coast scene and, and, and the studio scene and, and a little bit more about, you know, you're working with King Curtis and I do want to touch a little bit about Steely Dan, although I, I, I am actually, um, kind of bummed out to, to, when I read what, what you've talked about with them, uh, I've lost a little bit of, uh, respect for those guys only because, um, I don't understand why they wouldn't be a little bit more open about and sharing about who did the, the real work on those albums. But we'll pick that up, and uh, I hope you have a beautiful day, and uh, you know, everything's bigger in Texas, and so is Chuck Rainey's heart. So you keep it going, man. Uh, and, and thank you so very, very much. You've been very, very kind. Thank you so much. All right, talk to you later. Folks, welcome back to part two. 
with the Rock of Gibraltar on base, Chuck Rainey. Chuck, it's great to have you back. You know, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, one thing that I wanted that I missed from last time was the idea of some of these guys that you would uh, consistently run into. Uh, in fact, you guys became known as the Funky Thumbs, uh, specifically um, Arthur Adams and uh, a drummer that you worked with quite a bit was Paul Humphrey, and <clears throat> I think you know he's past us now, but. You know, this is like this is about resurrecting the spirits of those who made the music, and I just wanted to know a little bit about your relationship with Paul and what he meant to to so much, so many, so many records. Well, uh, Paul was uh, a good friend, and we did do a lot of sessions together, mostly films. I don't recall really working with Paul that much on records. But of course, him and I, and uh, he was one of the main state drummers I worked with. But usually on films, um, uh, I'm associated with Paul, bass and drums. Uh, a nice guy from Detroit. And I uh, did a couple of live gigs with him, too. I uh, can't recall exactly where they were, but uh, Paul was the, uh, you know, one of the older guys, not that much older, out of Detroit. And um, he's just very, uh, very different. You know, all this clothes from Taylor made, um, especially back in that day. You know, <laughs> when, uh, when they had the high heel shoes and the, uh, the guys were wearing shoulder bags and stuff like that. Well, all his stuff was tailored. Um, well, I'm glad you brought him up because he was a very interesting guy. Lived very well in Beverly Hills. I think it was Beverly Hills. I remember going to his house a few times. Um, I do remember Paul, very good reader, very good reader. He was one of the first guys that I saw that had his own earphones, mobile, uh, you know, in, in, in the uh, rhythm section. Sure. One of the first guys that I saw do that. I was going to say, um, because I, it's funny you said that I, I have a, a number of albums. Um, with you and him on it, uh, not soundtracks. Uh, one that we're going to listen uh, listen to in a little while. Really, uh, I mean, when I hear you guys play off each other, you know, it is literally like, you know, you're 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 keeping that pocket, you know, and and he is just keeping the beat, and it, it, it's similar to. You know some of these other great, uh, you know, rhythm sections like, uh, you know, maybe Mickey Roker and Bob Cranshaw kind of thing on the East Coast. But when I hear it, I mean, that's the kind of stuff. It, there's so much personality within the, uh, and I think that's why you were were able to perform on so many different records with so many different people. Is that, you know, your ability to fit in, it, fitting in is fine, but fitting in can also mean not really saying what you feel. And you had the ability to not just fit in, but also have a you have your own language, and that is a gift. I mean, is that something that you can really? I know you. We said that before. You said it three times. You practice, 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 practice. But can you? What are those intrinsic things that, in your mind, that you had that uh, you know that allowed you to be able to be so? Um, 
almost like a chameleon in some ways, just to be able to fit in everywhere, yet still be able to put your imprint on it. Well, it's kind of hard to say, it's really kind of hard to um, elaborate because it's so personal that I just don't know how to say it. <laughs> Other than, as I mentioned earlier, that everybody has their own, everybody smiles, but everybody has their own style. And working with good drummers, Paul was a good timekeeper. And he's a very uh, specific straight drummer. And when, uh, when I'm working with a drummer who's, uh, who's very profound and just keeps you know, a good steady flow and rhythm, then it, it does allow me to add adjectives and, and adverbs, if I can say it that way, to the conversation that I'm having uh, with, uh, with him, this director there, whatever the, the, uh, the artist or producer wants. It's very easy just to be yourself. So I don't know how to uh, explain how I... I know I, I play the same thing on all records. I'm, I'm very... Uh, it's only, you know, I don't try and do things that I'm not accustomed to doing because I've played so much. I just basically have found a way to just to, to speak from the base, you know, rhythmically to where it just fortifies whatever it is, uh, you know, the, the project is. I guess we all, all bass players have their own individual conversation that they have. But with Paul, he was very, very professional, number one, always on time. He read very, very well. And in you know, working with people like that, you know, I read well, or I do read well. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of people do not write bass parts or drum parts. Right. They just keep your chord sheet and have you stabilize whatever it is that they need for the artist or for the production. So it's kind of hard to say what, uh, other than I practiced so much, there was a time where I would put in six, seven hours a day, especially when I got to New York. And just practicing or playing or playing along with the records, but then that alone doesn't do it. I spent a lot of time with other acts and artists traveling on the road and just playing live local gigs in New York. Uh, to where you get to a point to where you learn what not to do as opposed to what to do, mm-hmm. and what not to do is to speak out too loudly. It's like four or five people having a conversation on a, on a particular subject matter, and they in 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 in, in most groups of people that are talking, there's always one person who's out speaking everybody else, or speaking louder, or the one who's saying the most. Sometimes that's a planned thing, uh, but they can't ignore that the other four people, where no one else has anything to say, but in music it's organized to where also too, you have a guitar player or a drummer, a bass player or a piano player that's speaking louder than everybody else, or just pushing a point. You know, I hope you follow what I'm saying. And it's like some people just talk louder and talk more than they should. Whereas in a lot of the music that, that is uh, successful, especially to someone like you, who you know, your ears are listening to the, uh, the project in a certain way, you can sort of tell who is it. And sometimes the individual is talking to a lot of annoying you know, when you can't help but the four or five guys go to a ball game, and there's one guy that's the loudest, always talking, always has something to say. 
I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't do well with those. I, I don't really. I don't. I'd rather go with people that where you can facilitate and 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 all talk together. I don't like those people that are just the. And you must find that, you know, especially with the ego. Some of these guys they come in and and they're just they're just flapping their gums and 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 there's not a lot of work being done, and uh, and it, and it, I, I that's the it's the mental focus part of it when you're in those situations where you're rolling your eyes and you're saying, well, okay, you know, I'm I mean I'm getting good pay, you know, that's great, but you know, I really am a, at the core. I love the music and this isn't doing it for me. I think it was it was. You know, from my perspective, and, and it was the way it was marketed. I mean, I have to keep that in mind. You were um, the way the the way the, the photos were taken, the way the liner notes were written, and then the personnel, and the way you guys were wearing your heart on your sleeve. I think, like you know, about Charles Kennard. I mean, Charles Kennard was he worked with you know mentally retarded children by day, and then at night. Uh, you know, he like, you know, for uh, Bob Shad on mainstream, you know, he, he was able to cut an album and bring in all these guys and it, 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 like yourself. And it didn't seem like there was those types of sessions seemed like everybody had something to say. And but there must I mean, being that you've done, done thousands of, of, of albums, there just must have been times where I just don't know how you filter out some of that mental energy, because sometimes I just kind of lose it on people. I, I, that's my personal thing, you know. <laughs>
about and sometimes they're easy to talk about you know but once you get a group of people together if they know each other nine out of ten times it's going to be a lot lot better than working with a group of people that you have not met before or have not played with before it's all about personality that's the contractor's job to make sure that uh, the people that he contracted for the job are going to be able to get along musically and mentally and to work for the artist. That's what makes people like Gary Katz uh, such a great uh, producer because he puts together people who um, he knows will get along together even if they disagree. You know, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I uh, continue, please. You know, I was. So you get the idea yeah. what I'm trying to say. You know, getting all because this is very esoteric and 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 it has a lot to do with with uh, with interpersonal stuff. But I, you know, on a, on a musical point of view, uh, when I talked to, um, uh, I did an interview with with Joe Sample, and he talked about uh, really with with Motown, um, uh, you know, hitting its stride in the late '60s. Uh, you know, you, and and I think you probably did quite a few sessions for Motown. I know Bernard was out there. Um, can you talk uh, in musical terms, uh, if you can, because you were kind of one of the, the four, forefront guys. But how did the, how did that that um, the gallop, the gallop of Motown, that soul, that 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 that, that uh, you know, it, how did it fuse with jazz? How did it change jazz in your mind? Well, I never really looked at Motown music as jazz. I looked at it as, as uh, pop, mm. pop music. Mm. Although it's classified as R&B, because most of the artists were black. But um, I looked at it as pop music. Motown for me was very, very difficult. And that, personally, I was always working for people, not always, no, I take that back. A lot of times I go to Motown and... Um, I'm working with people who, who have been designated to be an arranger or a producer, but they were not good at it, um, especially compared to the other sisters and jobs that I was involved in. Motown seemed to be a little bit under the wire for me, and if they played songs too many times, uh, the leader was usually the person who maybe mainly just wrote the song. Mm-hmm. And he's standing there as an arranger shaking his hands with the rhythm. The, the rhythm section has a click track in the ear, but this guy's standing in front of the band directing and sweating from directing <laughs> uh, and not really knowing what to, you know, what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, which is very difficult. Plus, in Motown, me also, too, I had a lot of problems with Motown. And it, you get booked from 10 to 1, and they always overdid the music. And, um, and if I had a two for five and it went overtime, I would have to leave. But the contractor would insist that you stay and he would call, you know, find out where you're working and, 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 and uh, offer to call and say you'd be late. Whereas me, I was from New York. And if I promise you I'm going to be at your session at two o'clock, I'm going to be there. And Motown just hired me. I could go a half hour over uh, from 10 to 1 to 1.30 to give me a half hour to get in the next gig. But I felt that if going to Motown got to be more, more of a, I didn't, well, to be honest with you, overall, I did not like to go. Right. Uh, there's a few producers like Willie Hutch was my favorite Motown producer. 
along with he knew what he was doing. I like working for Smokey Robinson, but most of the stuff that they would smoke here, I did at his house, not at the studio. Um, there were a few other producers that I like working for, but basically going to Motown, it's like they were used to working with people that had nothing else to do. Nobody else uh, was hiring these musicians. They were just working on a song. So it's kind of hard for me to talk about Motown because I'm not, I was not a Motown no, and absolutely. And I was there a lot. No, and I and this is why I love talking to Chuck Rainey because it's you're getting an inside perspective from somebody who's, you know, I mean, I I, I find it a lot with bass players, um, and you're you articulate it and you tell stories, but in your mind, it's it's a in many ways it's I mean absolutely it's a job, you know, it's a professional thing, and uh, it really does help when you can you know have somebody who's organizing it that understands well you know we can put these pieces together and you know they may not know each other but i know that they'll vibe together really well that is a a great arranger's sort of skill and i and uh you know just for the audience here you know i got a 1975 for chuck rainey we're going back probably over 35 years and listen to you want to talk about filling up the calendar i remember talking to ed green the drummer and he's like, you always wanted to keep your calendar filled up, you know, and that was the key. And I'm just going to read off here, uh, you know, Fancy Dancer, Bobby Humphrey, Gears, Johnny Hammond Smith, Jamaica, Say You Will, Joe Cocker, Katie Lyde, Steely Dan, Mellow Madness, Quincy Jones, Nucleus, Sonny Rollins, Places and Spaces, Donald Byrd, um, not, a guy I'm not familiar with, Sammy Jones, uh, then another another Bobby Humphrey album seven from seventy five uh, called Satin Doll, Sergio Mendez song from my lady John Lucian Jimmy Witherspoon Donald Byrd Larry Coryell it goes on and on and on and on I I, I tend I mean how at that point um, how did you how did you divide your time between uh, your responsibilities as a father and a husband, and then, I mean, were you all, were you, was it all centrally located? Because it seems to me like every day at that, in that period in your career, you must have been getting calls. Well, it was a job. A lot of people do go to work from nine to five. And basically, at that time, especially when I moved to Hollywood, um, you do want to keep the calendar filled because you have to live, you know, you got to support your family. In New York, I didn't have a family. Uh, I was single. That was very easy. Uh, when I moved to California, of course, you know, with a wife, two-car garage, and a baby. Yes. Uh, you got to go to work. So basically, it's, uh, uh, I had no problem. I would uh, answer my answering service, accept the date if I was not working at a particular time. Just go to the session and just and, and just play my bass. Now, you know, we must remember too that that a lot of these people did not know me from Adam at the very beginning. And you have a contract or a producer who reads line and notes or hears about you know in the environment who is doing what and, and how things are like once you didn't know who I was. His contract did in New York and in L.A. All the same way with Walter and Donald, uh, I was Billy Dan. They had no idea who me and Bernard or Paul Humphrey or Harvey Mason were. Um, they just wanted somebody who had a name value. And when you put the 
studio, uh, someone else has put the band together, and you're there for a job. Mm -hmm. You're there to do the best you can to appease and to please the arts and the producer. And of course, the producer is working for the artist. Sometimes it's vice versa. Sometimes the artist is working for the producer. Uh, but you still got to please the person that hired you. Um, you know, so that you can come back tomorrow or, or, or another day. And of course, people like to work with people that they can get along with. And I've always tried to have a pleasing, you know, pleasing personality, not to talk too much, but to be able to do something. If I'm doing something that I want to do and they don't like it, and I disagree, I'm not one to say I disagree. If I'm playing a particular way and uh, a person is suggesting to do another thing that I disagree with, I just do what they want to do. I love it. No, it's so beautiful, man, because it's it, um, you've t you're talking about values that are non-existent on on a lot of levels now in our in our society, whether it's in a bureaucracy, whether it's in music, whether it's in politics, whether it's in entertainment, sports, it doesn't matter. The idea of disagreement is is a is paralysis now. It's really a paralyzing force for a lot of things, and it's a one reason we're sort of mired in this and can't get any seem to get any traction uh in my mind uh as we move into this new new century whereas you're saying um yeah you might have serious strong disagreements and it's like you know i'm just gonna let it go and i just think that that is one of the most powerful things especially you know because it could, I mean, I just, there's so many people that, that, that have that, they don't have that filter. And I think I, that's one of the things that I'm still working on in my life. I mean, I just, I, you know, in general, if I, you know, if I, if maybe it's just insecurity, but it's like, you know, I, I feel the need to have to, not all the time, but, you know, interject, get my thoughts across and, you know, and because it's important and, and, and you're basically coming at it saying, well, you know, I know that I would maybe go in a different direction, but. You know, I, I know my role, and I'm just gonna stay quiet and and or just cooperate. Cooperation, you know. Yeah, and I, 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 I haven't always been good at that, uh, Jay. Hmm. I had to learn how to do that. Because sometimes I was correcting my thinking, and sometimes I was wrong. But then sometimes I was not. I didn't have all the information. <laughs> I remember doing a uh, record date in New York for Gary Cash, <laughs> and. <clears throat> Band was from uh, London, hmm. and one thing about having privacy <clears throat> when you're doing a record is because you don't, as good as you don't have to be involved with a lot of strange people that have nothing to do with the project. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me, you know they have nothing to do with the project, but they're in the control and they're in, they're in the studio. But in this particular session, it was basically a a funk section or a Memphis kind of thing. And um, the first two days, uh, there was a guy in the control room, uh, many of them, two or three, and he kept messing around with little simple things that I was doing on the bass, which I thought was ridiculous because it was straight R&B, and what I was doing was definitely what was, uh, you know, what was needed. Mm -hmm. So on the third day, and it was just one guy, just one guy, maybe three or four that did not seem to have anything to do with the project. And um, I think I think I may have known that this guy was a singer. Because you know what happens when 
sometimes when a studio or when a record company hires a band, they're hiring the lead singer because they saw him with his band. But once they do the record, they use the studio band. Of course, yes. Supposed to use his band. Right. And so on the third day, I called up Jerry before the session, and I forced my opinion about this guy being very nitpicky about R&B stuff. And I was beginning to, you know, have a problem with it. And so, I mean, but not enough of a problem where I was going to voice my opinion and cause a stir. And he said, well, well, he's the bass player in the band. And he's also the lead singer. So what he's probably doing is he's probably knowing what, it's hard to sing and play the bass sometimes. Or not hard, but you know, you got to, like, as a singer and a bass player myself, I have to choose material that can fit over me being a bass player, if you follow what I'm saying. It's not like a guitar player just drumming, but a bass player has to be like a drummer. You have to keep something consistent going. So to me, it would have been really nice if he had told me that, you know, that this is the lead singer, he's also the bass player. Mm. Um, and I would have understood why he was nitpicking little things that was making me uncomfortable for the first two days. But being uncomfortable, it's a, it's, 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 it should be no problem for anybody. You, know, you just got to just... And plus, I was able to talk to Gary this way because we were friends, and I had worked with him so many times. So I could say, hey, man, what's with this guy? He's bugging me. <laughs> so if I had had that information the first day, it wouldn't have bugged me. I would have understood that he wants me to play something that he can play and sing over. Would that have would 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 you have been comfortable with that, or would that have been like you would have been like okay, uh, this is was he literally like? I'm just trying to get the idea when you were when you were uh, doing uh, you know you were playing the songs. He was actually in the control room, like tweaking your bass as you were playing it, or after the fact. No, no, just just mouthing out. Don't do this. <laughs> no, I, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But now, professionally, I have to make a living. And I have to please the person. Now, there's a producer sitting there. He ain't saying nothing. He's letting this guy do this to me. But then the producer hired me because he knew that I would handle the situation that one particular way. I do what the guy wanted. I say, well, you know, like this, this is half of a baseline. It would sound better if it were like this. You know, I just, if I'm asked, if somebody asks my opinion about what I'm playing or about what they ask me to play, I can give my opinion. You know, just like Donald Fagan not want me to slap the bass. He never asked me at all about what I thought about a bass line. All he had been listening to was Lewis Johnson slap the bass. And of course, the way Lewis did it, the sound of the bass was almost, it was not like your average bass because Lewis used a lot of treble. So I can't help what Donald's was listening to. But I do know as a player, if I slap a particular part, it's going to give, from my interpretation of music, it's going to give it a whole you know, better flavor. You know, and so like, you just got to hide certain kind of things because some people are not aware of what's going to sound good. They already come preconditioned into a session on what they think they want. 